0: Well, thank you for your introduction. And and just to be clear, I have have three three children, not three wives, and one wife. So, I think you got that. But just clearing that up so no rumors start flying around about me. It's good to be It's good to be here today, and I, I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and on behalf of Hamilton Baptist Church, where I have the privilege to serve as as one of the pastors there. And I'm, I'm just grateful, even from the outset, for our partnership, our friendship in the gospel. Um, even now as I'm at Hamilton, and even as I prepare to lead a church plant like like you all are familiar with, Lord willing next year into Lovitzville. And so I'm excited about uh, and grateful for our current partnership and our future partnership. And I could talk about Jacob, but I'm grateful for your pastor, his friendship, his influence in my life, uh, his mentorship in my life, and I trust you all are thankful for his love for Christ, he loves you all dearly. He talks about you all in very kind ways. And He loves you and loves to shepherd you I trust in humility. And so, praise God for all of those things. And praise God for His Word, which I'm grateful to share with you this morning. If you were to take a walk in 17th century England, you would find many homes with enclosed gardens around them. And typically these gardens would be rectangular in shape or enclosed by walls, fences, or hedges. And the idea behind these barriers was to keep protection from the winds that would come in or outside rodents. But also these gardens provided a place of refuge in the 1600s in England. As you are aware, if you know anything about history, England was ravaged by civil war in the 17th century. And what would happen is people would escape to these gardens as, quote, places of security or refuge from the dangers of political and religious strife. And it was also at this time when Baptists, Baptist church and congregations were starting to rise and form together and become a recognized entity. And in one of those early Baptist confessions, they described local churches as water gardens. In fact, one of those early pastors, Benjamin Peach, he wrote this, God hath out of the people of this world taken his churches and walled them about that none of the evil beasts can hurt them. All mankind naturally were alike dry and barren as a wilderness and brought forth no good fruit. But God hath separated some of this barren ground to make lovely gardens for himself to walk and delight in. The church of Jesus Christ is a garden enclosed. That's a beautiful description of a local church, isn't it? A beautiful garden, think about it, producing various herbs, fruits, vegetables. Just like a church standing on the good news of Jesus, watching his word produce life. We who were once left in a dry and barren land in a wilderness by sin and ravaged by its effects have been brought in by God's grace and given life, brought together as a church, and united on a mission to see our garden here grow and flourish, and more gardens planted and established around the world. And if you take your Bible and turn to Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, I think what you'll see is is a similar metaphor going on here. In the book of Philippians, you'll discover as, as soon as you open your Bible to Philippians, you see that there's a church that fits this description. It's a beautiful garden. And ever since Paul planted this church around the year... 50 AD, there's been an ongoing partnership between him and this church as he ventures into new frontiers to proclaim the gospel and plant more churches. And around ten years later, the Apostle Paul writes back to this church at Philippi, and he thanks them for their faithful partnership. And we find that the church is defending and confirming the gospel. They're growing in their faith. They're supporting missions. It's a beautiful gospel garden. Yet, as you all are aware, even if you don't know that much about gardening, gardening takes work. Even the most productive garden does not maintain itself. You can't just grow a garden and sit back and let it go and assume it will happen again next year or the year after. It takes work. You must continually guard it from outside hazards as well as weeds and diseases from within. And of course, this is true of churches, just like you, and just like us. There are opponents to the gospel, and the church must take a stand and guard against the opponents of the gospel. And there are also, and I fear, as chapter 2 warns us and we'll see, there's another danger. And it's the danger from within, within our churches, within our hearts. And it's the idea of disunity brought about by selfish ambition. And I have no doubt in my mind that Satan would love to slither in here, as he did back at the beginning of time, and nurture and feed our selfish ambitions and uproot this gospel family. So how, by God's grace, can we guard this gospel community? Can you all guard the gospel community, the family that you have as Loudon Valley Baptist Church? And so I'd like for you even to think about this sermon, this passage, as we go through it. First, we're going to see the glorious Christ. We're going to behold Jesus. But second of all, think of this as a checkup for your church, your community, and even your own heart. Maybe a uh, a diagnostic test and a treatment, if necessary. So if you would, read with me Philippians chapter 2, and we'll read from verses 1 through 11. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. So here's the main idea for Philippians 2, 1-11. through Philippians 2, 1-11, through here it is. Unity is cultivated when selfish ambitions are eradicated. And selfish ambitions are eradicated in Jesus. So let me say that again. And if you take notes, this is a good time to write this down. Because this is how we're going to walk through this passage today. Unity is cultivated when selfish ambitions are eradicated. And selfish ambitions are eradicated in Jesus. So we cut that half we have our outline for today. So first, unity is cultivated when selfish ambitions are eradicated. Notice how chapter 2 begins. Look at verse 1. If there is any encouragement, if there is comfort, if there is any love. Now, it seems clear from the context that the Apostle Paul isn't asking a genuine question or wondering if these qualities exist. Rather, what he's doing is He's using this conditional clause, if, to make his point. He's connecting the dots between what they know is true in Christ, what they already have in Christ, and what they must do as a result. You hear this logic used all the time. If you really love your family, you will get this life insurance. Or if you're a true American, you will vote for and fill in the blank. I won't do that for you. (laughs) He's connecting the dots for them. And look what he says in verse 2. Since you're a gospel community, since there's encouragement in Christ, since there's comfort, God of comfort gives us love, since there's fellowship, he says participation, it's the idea of fellowship, with the triune God. Since you have that, complete my joy. In other words, here's God's will, since you are a gospel community, In fellowship with God, here's what you must do. If this is true of you, here's what you must do. Verse 2. Have the same mind. Be like-minded. And he's really explaining our basis of unity. Have the same love. You've experienced God's love through Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit. Now show that love to others. And in all of this is this compact phrase... Full accord. United in spirit. Harmony. And this should cause us and reminds us of the words of Jesus before he was crucified in John 17. He, he prayed for you. Did you know that Jesus prayed for you? His people. That even weren't alive at the time. Right before he went to the cross. He said, may they all be one just as you father and are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is the basis. This is the type of soil that we are to be cultivating so that the gospel may continue to grow and flourish in our hearts and in our minds as a local church. But notice a few few things if you step back and just look at this. As important as unity is, Many people love to talk about unity and getting together and getting along. Notice it's not divorced from doctrine. He says, you need to be of the same mind. This is why we have doctrinal statements. This is why I'm sure from time to time you say creeds to remind ourselves, we believe the same things, we're on the same team. Yet, furthermore, as as important as the same mind is, notice it's not divorced from love. Simply believing the same thing or agreeing on the same beliefs does not mean you can be a theological jerk, right? You're to be grounded in love, knowledge and love. And none of this is surface level. It's the basis of real gospel unity. Unity on truth and in love. This is why I trust most of you, or all of you I assume, when you became members of of Loudon Valley Baptist Church, that you signed in members' covenant. It united you in the truth that you all believe together, but a promise to love and care and serve one another. And really, this is the best apologetic that we have for a world that is becoming increasingly divided and more polarized, is that we may not agree on everything. We may have different preferences, but we are united in Christ. And as Jesus prayed, the world will believe that God sent Jesus as a result of our unity. But how does this happen? Again, it doesn't just happen naturally. It takes work. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. So unity is cultivated. It happens when these selfish ambitions are plucked out of us, are eradicated. And this takes Work. So from the basis of unity, we see there's work. Cultivating and maintaining a productive garden requires more than watering. It requires pulling the weeds that can choke the life out of the garden. And in the church, some of the most destructive weeds that can grow amongst us, if we're not careful, are those of selfish ambition and conceit, as the Apostle Paul warns. Selfish ambition. What is selfish ambition? I think the idea is it's when you act for your own goals and your own agendas, it's all about self-interest. What benefits you and your status, not the churches, and thus not Christ? What about conceit? If you were to look at the word conceit and break it apart, literally it means empty glory empty glory you think you are filled with glory but it's baseless there's nothing to it so based on these verses in what ways do you tend to live for yourself what was you maybe tend to live for yourself maybe the church calendar is is low on your list maybe the events of the church Gatherings of the church are not a top priority for you. It's behind many other things. Maybe you don't prioritize your financial giving to the church. Maybe it's low on your list. And again, these are just diagnostic questions, thinking in your heart. Maybe you say, I go to church. I love being part of a a mission church. I love being part of a gospel church. But I don't really contribute much. I just kind of show up. That's conceit. You think you are this, but it's baseless. Or maybe you do serve. Praise God. Praise God that you do serve His church. But maybe in the back of your mind, or there are even some moments when you think, you know, I wish people would see me a little bit more. I wish people would appreciate me a little bit more than they do. I think I deserve a bit more appreciation for, for all that I do around here. And we could go on and on and name these these little thoughts that will pop in your head and, and motives. I just say, caution you of that slithering snake, just like Genesis 3, who tries to creep in and fill your thoughts. He's, he's planting those weeds, those thoughts. Instead of that, we are to live and act in humility. Verse 3. But in humility. And Paul seems to define humility for us right here in verse 3. Look at it. In humility. What does humility mean, Paul? Well, count others more significant than yourselves. Count others as more significant than yourselves. The NIV translates it, looking to the interest of others before looking at your own interests. And before we think more about this, we need to remind ourselves that humility sometimes can be confused with self-pity. And that's not the same thing. In fact, Tim Keller helps us out. He says, true humility is not thinking less of yourself. But it is thinking of yourself less. Sometimes you may have met a Christian, another brother or sister, and there's always, woe is me. And it actually, if you do that too often, calls attention to yourself. And so it's not thinking of yourself less. That's not the point. But it's thinking of yourself. It's not true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And so, Paul is showing us that unity, this gospel flourishing unity, won't happen where there's selfish ambitions growing and flourishing. So if we want to maintain and cultivate unity, we must eradicate them. And the question is, how do we do this, though? You and I both know, we all know that selfish ambitions, this is easy to say, it's easy for me to get up here and say we're not to be selfish, we're not to let this happen. But by nature, this is really difficult work. As C.S. Lewis reminded us, He says, one out of every three is a thought of self-admiration. He says, when I look in the mirror, what an admirable fellow I am. I catch myself posturing before the mirror, so to speak, all day long. I pretend I'm carefully thinking out loud what to say to the next pupil, for his good, of course. And then suddenly realize that I'm thinking how frightfully clever I'm going to be and how he will admire me. And then when you force yourself to stop it, you admire yourself for doing that. It's like fighting the Hydra. There seems to be no end to it. Depth under depth of self-love and self-admiration. Do you ever feel that struggle when you're trying to put to death these, these selfish ambitions or your desires that you know you should be having for the good of others? but it just keeps creeping back up. It's like a a weed. And and you've all seen it. Even even something as, as hard and firm as pavement or cement, weeds still can pry and pop up through there. So the roots of selfish ambitions and conceit, I think we would all agree, are so deeply rooted in us because by nature we are sinners and we can't tear them out. But this passage gives us good news, of course, which is the word gospel. And so, in order for unity to flourish, selfish ambitions must be eradicated. But do you remember that second part of the phrase? Selfish ambitions are eradicated in Jesus. And we see this in verses 5 through 11. How do you, how do we eradicate selfish ambitions? The Apostle Paul says to have this mind of Christ. Look at Jesus. See what Jesus has done! Behold the resurrected Christ, as some commentators and throughout the history of the church have referred to this passage as the Christ hymn. Now, as we jump into this section of verses five through eleven, some of the most beautiful words of Scripture. I want to take a brief moment, like a footnote, and it'll be like one minute, because I think this is really important. If you're thinking about, maybe you have friends, families, or neighbors, somebody who doesn't know Jesus, one of the most common objections to Jesus is that the divinity of Jesus, or this idea that Jesus being God was created centuries after Jesus and the early apostles lived. They say that came along hundreds of years after the fact. But I want to show you, give you three quick reasons how you can actually respond to that. Maybe even in your own heart, you've been reading some scholar out there who says, Jesus didn't claim to be God, early Christians didn't believe that. Let me give you three little truths from this passage, and then we'll jump back into it. First, you can't get earlier Christian belief than what we have in Philippians. You really can't get much earlier belief than what we have in Philippians. Paul wrote Philippians around the year 62 AD. Paul would have planted this church around the year 50 AD. And Paul was converted around the year 33 33- Now, Jesus died right around that time, so you you can't get earlier Christianity than this. So you want to know what the earliest Christians believed? Philippians is a pretty valid historical document to, to find that out. Secondly, there are multiple witnesses. The Apostle Paul isn't the only one saying things like this. You can look at John chapter 1. Jesus is the Word in the beginning with God. He was God, yet he wasn't the Father. In Hebrews chapter 1. All the New Testament. And here's the thing about the New Testament. It was all written while there were still eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ still alive. And finally, you may say, well, maybe this was a sneaky agenda of Christians trying to promote a new worldview. But I don't think that's a very good sneaky agenda. Because it was never a good call for early Christians to call any human being, other than Caesar, Lord. It just didn't end well, especially when a guy like Nero was in charge of the country. So, you can't get earlier Christian belief than this. There are multiple witnesses scattered throughout the New Testament. And this wasn't a sneaky agenda. At least if it was, wasn't a very good one. So, ultimately, remind ourselves that when you come to faith in Jesus, you come to by faith. But it's not a blind faith. It's rooted in historical facts and realities our faith stands on real historical events now back from the footnote selfish ambitions are eradicated in jesus now he says have this mind and we see this humility of jesus and then we see this exaltation of jesus so if we're sticking with Paul's argument how do we eradicate how do we get rid of these selfish ambitions Well, I want to point out four ways as this text unfolds for us to think through that. So, asking the question, how do we eradicate these selfish ambitions? Let me give you four four ways from the text, and and these build on each other. So first, in verse 6, Behold the deity of Jesus. Behold the deity of Jesus. Look at verse 6. Jesus was in the very form or nature of God himself. What does that mean? Well, keep on reading. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, seized, or taken advantage of. So if Jesus is in the form of God and equal with God, what does that mean? Jesus is God. He's in the form of God. He's equal with God. He is God. Jesus enjoyed What the author, what the Apostle Paul is telling us here is that Jesus enjoyed all the privileges and prerogatives of being God. He was God. So why is the Apostle Paul telling us this? Well, essentially he's showing us that there is nothing, there is nothing outside of Jesus' power. He has all the privileges, all the prerogatives of being God, yet what? He humbles himself. He humbles himself. He doesn't use his status, his rights, in selfish ways. He submits to the Father. And so here we're reminded that temptation to use our status, our talents, our gifts, for our own recognition, they seem to fade when we're looking at the deity of Jesus. That he was actually God himself, yet he humbled himself. He humbled himself. Secondly, behold, the emptying of Jesus in verse 7. The emptying of Jesus. He's saying, but he emptied himself. Now sometimes people have taken this passage to mean, based on this phrase that Jesus, who was divine, who was God himself, somehow for a period of time stopped being divine and stopped being God when he became a human being. But that is not what this passage is saying. It's not true. So what does he mean that Jesus emptied himself? Again, I'll tell you again, keep reading. Look what he says. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, of human. So Jesus already existed before time, before he came in a manger. Yet he was fully God. Yet he became man. Do you see the the paradox How did He empty Himself? Well, He he emptied Himself by taking on. He emptied Himself by adding something. The Word became flesh. Not just any human. He became a servant. Jesus, very God of God, existed with the Father before time. He became a servant. He didn't come to human uh, in human form to be a real human being and set up his throne and be a king and have us um, bow down to him and have us give him all of our money. He came as a servant. The desire to fill our lives with the most pleasure, as even as Americans, and we don't want to sacrifice much, I think starts to diminish again when we see. The very God of God, Jesus himself, taking on the form of a servant. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. Third, as we're thinking about eradicating selfish ambitions, look at the death of Jesus. Behold the death of Jesus. Verse 8. So he came as a servant. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on cross. Do you remember how the Gospels describe the death of Jesus? Or those moments leading up to the death of Jesus, the night before the crucifixion? Do you remember the scene in the garden? Jesus goes to the garden to be with his father. And he's sweating blood. Sweating blood. And he cries out to the Father, Father, is there any other way? Not in fear of Roman soldiers, but the cup of God's judgment for sinners that he was about to drink. Father, is there any other way for this cup to pass? Please, Father, Silence. If there's any way for this cup to pass, please let it pass, Father. Silence from the Father. And Jesus says, yet not my will, but what you will. I will drink the cup. I'll drink the cup. And we're reminded as Christians and And I think we have to think, so many times when we look at the cross today, I mean, we we wear them around our necks, we we get tattoos, and we do all kinds of things with them. But in the first century, the cross was execution. It was the symbol of a criminal. And who would have ever thought that a cross could be so beautiful? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So those times that we compare ourselves to others, when we turn to belittling others to make ourselves feel better, and when we look at the death of Christ and His humility and His humbling for our sake, to take our sins, we tend to stop belittling and thinking less of others. And as His body, as His people, we too are to give our lives to one another. There will always be someone better than you. I think we we need to realize there's always going to be somebody more talented in whatever area you're trying to pursue. And so if we live to compete with that, we'll always be competing. We'll always be disappointed. This goes for us as parents. This goes for you as moms, us as dads, you as a student, you as kids. If we're competing and looking what other people have and trying to outdo one another, outdo one another, it will never work. We'll keep... Running empty and running dry, it will never satisfy us. But what if, in turn, we see Christ, who was God himself, who humbled himself, who died for us, for our sins, not his? It seems to eradicate those selfish ambitions in our heart. John Stott helps us understand this. He says, all of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. At the foot of the cross, we shrink to our true size. Jesus tears down. Jesus demolishes. Jesus eradicates. He pulls the weeds out only to give way to something much better and more beautiful. Look at verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name deity, incarnation, death. Finally, selfish ambitions are eradicated when we behold the exaltation of Jesus. So finally, just behold the exalted Christ, the exalted King. Jesus did not remain dead. Jesus did not remain dead. For God has exalted him. Do you remember Isaiah 45? Isaiah 45 It's describing God and who he is. And what he's like. And his victory. And in Isaiah 45, if, if you have your Bible, you can glance over to Isaiah 45 for a moment. I think it's it's worth taking a quick glance at. Isaiah 45. And if you look in verse, verse 24 of Isaiah 45, see there's this anger and shame going on. Isaiah 45, verse 24. God is is pouring out His judgment. And it says, Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, Our righteousness and strength to Him shall come and be ashamed. All who are incensed against Him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. And earlier in Isaiah 45, there in verse 23. Look at the end of verse 23. To me, God is saying, to me, in the end, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. So, one day, God is saying, everybody, every knee will bow to me. And you see what's happening in Philippians chapter 2. You see what the Apostle Paul is showing us. That very same prerogative that God himself took to the people Isaiah was prophesying to, Jesus is now claiming for himself. He is Yahweh. He is the Lord. And at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Jesus is Lord. Not Nero, not the president, not the next president, or the next president, not that king, not the dictator. Jesus is king, brothers and sisters. And this Jesus is worthy of your life and your allegiance. The question is not will you bow the knee? to King Jesus, but the question is when? The question is not will you confess Jesus to be Lord of all, but when? It's not the question of of will you do this, but will you do so with joy? Jesus is Lord. He saved me, or begrudgingly. What are you waiting for? If you're here today, and you've not yet bowed the knee to Jesus and seen His beauty, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? I close just by reminding us that selfish ambitions, these selfish desires that we all have, they, they are eradicated when we behold all of these great, wonderful, beautiful, historic Christian truths about Jesus. And, and obviously the year 2020 has been challenging, I trust, for, for most of us. Obviously. You're not meeting where you normally meet. You're outside and it's nice. It's getting a little warm, and there's maybe some more setup and tear down than what you're used to. But with all of the issues going on, you know, between the pandemic that, that we find ourselves in, or the political division that seems to be rising and rising as we get closer and closer to November, or even the many social issues that keep popping up, and you have to be on this side or this side, or else you're, you're not liked by anybody. you say the church, the church, and, and even you all as your faith family, should be the safest place in the world to have these discussions. What if there's something, as, as divisive as these issues are, and as many sides that people take on all these sides, what if there's something deeper, more foundational, that we can find our unity, our hope, our lives built upon, and remind ourselves of those truths, That I was created by God. He saved me through Christ. I will live for Him forevermore. Never to be tainted by sin again. What if we start there and remind ourselves that every day, every night, every gathering as a church. And then we can go on to have those discussions and even disagreements on some of these issues. But it won't break our unity that we have in Christ church should be the safest place in the world for these discussions, and even disagreements. We won't agree on everything, but what unity we do have in Christ, in his word. And may that unity never be broken by our selfish ambitions. We all journey together until we reach that ultimate joy of Jesus one day, of being with him and him with us. Until that day we need each other. As an individual Christian sitting here, you need the church. The church is not merely here to help you have a better life, but it's preparing you for eternity. To be with Jesus and his people forevermore. Until then, may we continue to stand on Holy Scripture, proclaim the gospel, support missions as we see in Philippians, as one united, excuse the phrase, garden of God, in which he walks in, in which he delights in. I remind you, brothers and sisters, that unity is cultivated when selfish ambitions are eradicated. And these selfish ambitions are eradicated in the cross of Jesus' resurrection. He is King. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful for this day. We are thankful for your beauty, for your word. And I pray that you would unite us as your people on Jesus' In the gospel, and the hope that we have in Him. And I pray if there's any selfish desires, even in our heart, that we would look to Jesus, and, and by your grace through your Spirit, that we would trust Him, and that those selfish ambitions would be eradicated, and that unity would be cultivated. And we ask this for your glory, for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.